Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Richard Middleton as our guest to talk about his new book, Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God. This book explores the idea that God desires something other than silent obedience in difficult times. It says that God invites our protests and our laments. Richard is a professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. He also serves as adjunct professor of theology at Roberts Wesleyan College and adjunct professor of Old Testament at the Caribbean Graduate School of Theology in Kingston, Jamaica. Well, welcome to the podcast. I know that Scott is really excited to talk to you about this book. I've been reading his updates in his Substack newsletter, and I know he's got lots of thoughts about it, but welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's really great to be here, Laura. Well, Richard, I'm I'm glad to have you. I, uh, I first became aware of you through your amazing book on the image of God in Genesis, The Liberating Image. And then I liked your book, New Heavens and New Earth, and I uh, I blogged about that one. But this one really came, this one is something, you know, because I don't read all the technical literature on Old Testament studies. I did not know you were working on this theme. And I just think this is uh, a profoundly challenging book that makes us look at Abraham and the Akeda, or the Binding of Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22, in fresh new ways. So, you know, I think uh, the easiest way to begin this, Richard, is just to have you tell us a bit about why this passage became so fascinating to you that you've spent, what, 30 years on, uh, thinking about this? Is that right? Yeah, about right, yeah. 36, yeah, I would say. 36. Oh, there we go. Okay. Go ahead. So, so when I was a young man in my late 20s, early 30s, I went through a spiritual crisis where I began to, my life fell, fell apart. I didn't disbelieve in God. I didn't doubt God. What I doubted, I believe, was God's goodness. And it's looking back, I was able to see that was the issue. The result of that doubt was that I stopped praying for perhaps six months and it was reading the Lament Psalms where the psalmist challenged God that opened my heart back up to God. And I began a journey not only of deepening my faith since then, but teaching on the Lament Psalms and the book of Job, uh, because I found it helpful for pastoral care, but also for spiritual growth and for theological engagement. But along the way, I've always wondered then, if God wants people to grapple with him, to, as one of my professors put it, take hold of God and pull... Uh, why is Job? Uh, why is Job so um, in God's face and is viewed as someone who speaks rightly of God, but Abraham is passive in the face of his the command to sacrifice his own son? What's going on there? It's been troubling me, tickling me for a long time, and I've tried to mention it in class and talk it through with students over the years, and finally, um, a few years back. My publisher, Baker Academic, said, okay, you've done this last book. What do you want to do next? And I said, I think I want to write on the, so I'll pronounce it the Sephardic way, 
the Akedah, you pronounce the Ashkenazi way, the Akedah, right? The, the binding of Isaac. So I said, that's what I want to work on. So give me some time to come up with a proposal. And it came up about that I connected Lament Psalms with Job, with the Akedah. Okay, now, you know, when I, I used to teach Survey of the Whole Bible to, to undergraduates. I did this for 17 years. And I loved going to the Psalms because I would show the college students how utterly honest David was and complaining. And he could say, hey, hey, God, I'm righteous. I should get what I'm asking for here. And I said to the students, I learned from my college professor that um, that prayer is rugged honesty with God. And so I would tell him, I'd say, if you if you think God is distant, you tell him that. If you think God is unjust, you tell him that. If you think something is unjust in the world, complain to God about it. You don't have to tell God what you think God wants to hear. You have to tell God what's really on your heart. So I really liked your section early in the book, just on laments and protests. I wonder if you could just say a few words about how you've uh, resonate with the laments and the protests. Yeah, so I just want to say that the, the lament psalms seem very abrasive. You know, to start a prayer, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's a pretty you know, um, rough way to start. And the way I'd, I talk to my students about that is I said, you know, when I was working on one of my books, I used to work in a study in my church because I didn't have my own office. And, and when I'm working, I go to visit my pastor and I'd knock on his door tentatively and say, you got a moment? Can we chat? But if I was going through something really existentially profound, I would just bang the door open and say, I got to talk. <laughs> and I said, that's the way some of these Psalms work. They yeah. take the, the realities of experience and they say, God, there's nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Let me come to you with everything that's in, in my life and, and lay it before you. And it seems very abrasive, but it's really only, as I put it in the book, supplication with an edge. Because anytime yeah. you ask God for something, you're telling God what he should be doing for you. But really what you're doing is you're claiming the promises of God from Scripture and saying, yeah, you yeah. want us, you want this to happen, God, but it's not happening now. So what's what gives? And so this is a, a way of keeping faith with God rather than turning away, putting your back to God and walking away. It's bringing what you have to God. Your pastor may find it problematic if you speak that openly, but God has more resources than your pastor to take whatever you've got and to say, there, there, I understand. Let me hold you tight now. And you may not get the answer cognitively that you're looking for, but your faith will be deepened as a result because you'll come to learn I, the mercy and love of God, that the creator of the universe is willing to hear us in our disorientation. Well, that's a lot of stuff right there. That is... Um... I find this to be so characteristic of of those lament psalms, and uh, I'm I'm really grateful for that. I would call it a very accessible introduction to laments in the Bible, but you're setting you're setting something up here, and that is, and I I found it so rhetorically skilled. You set us up with all this lament, this honesty, this protest of God that this is a genuine form of prayer. It is not, you know, it's like the collects 
of the of the uh, Book of Common Prayer, where you you give God a name and then you tell God something about God, and in a sense, you're telling God why God should answer your request, your your petition. Um, and laments are a bit that way. But what I found really interesting, uh, and this is this kind of jumps through the book rather than in your next section, is there's a story about Abraham in Genesis 18 that I've always uh, found very intriguing. And there, um, I know you I know you don't like this term, but I'll say it so you can correct it, is, yeah, he's going to, He's going to bargain with God about how many people uh, God is willing to save, whatever. So tell us th- that uh, about this Genesis 18 as the, as the setting up of Genesis 22. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me when I was thinking about the Akedah, Genesis 22, is that Abraham seemed to have changed from chapter 18, where he boldly yeah protest to God and says, you can't destroy Sodom if there are righteous people living there, whereas he became silent when God said to destroy your own son. So that contrast is very important to me. And lots of scholars have tried to articulate what's the difference between the two. And some want to say, well, there's a balance. Sometimes you protest, sometimes you submit. And I want to look narratively at the structure of the book of Genesis and the Abraham story What's going on with Abraham as he's changing and developing as a narrative character? And so this point about bargaining, right? I I made the argument that it's not really bargaining because if I want to sell, if I want to buy a car and you say, well, I'll I'll give you the car for 2,000 bucks. And I say, can I get it for 100? You say, no. How about, you know, 800? And I say 200 and we meet in the middle. That's bargaining. But in this Mm -hmm. case... God says, I'm going to, uh, you know, the, the cry of Sodom has come to me. I'm going down to see if it needs destruction. And Abraham says, well, you can't destroy them if there are 50 righteous. And God says, you're right. And Abraham says, you can't destroy them if there are 45 righteous. God says, yeah, that's correct. And Abraham keeps bringing the number down. And then he brings it down by 10 at a certain point. And then he says, I got one last question for you. You're not going to destroy them if there's 10 righteous. And God says, no. And Abraham stops it there. I think that if Abraham just have said, would you save the city for Lot and his family? God would have said, of course, because that's what he wants to do. And God then goes and sends angels to rescue Lot and his family, even though Abraham has not asked for that. So I think that this story is actually initiated by God to teach Abraham the mercy of God. It's very similar, I thought, to um, the golden calf episode where God seems to give Moses an opening to intercede on behalf of Israel. In both cases, God wants to show mercy, but not without the human agent taking some sort of responsibility and entering the fray, because Mm -hmm. it's about teaching that. You can explain something intellectually, or you can have a person learn from experience. And, you know, I bring my experience to the text. My experience was it is precisely through praying these sorts of prayers that I came to a deep understanding of God's love, much deeper than I had before. And I think that's what God is trying to teach Moses uh, in Exodus 32, what God's trying to teach Abraham in Genesis 18. Didn't quite work, so God says, let's up the ante, let's try another time. And it doesn't quite work there either. Though God is still so gracious, at the end of Genesis 22, he still wants to keep Abraham in relationship but that's you know that's I'm summarizing. Yeah, I, I uh, when I read this on Genesis 18, 
Richard, you uh, you sort of rebuked me because I'm I'm sitting here thinking I taught this all these years and I never saw this is that he stops at ten and and you say why stop at ten why not why not go down to zero or one and uh, that's a, a a really good I think that's really really amazing now. Uh, in Genesis 22, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And you have a fascinating idea what the test was about. We'll get to that. He said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, I got to tell you, I I was sitting in church about three or four years ago, whenever the reading of this text is in the church calendar, and the and the man who was reading it stopped right there and was weeping, because he perceived the uh, the you know that he could never do this in his own life, and why would God? ask someone to do this. You know, and there's a lot of people who don't read the Bible enough to know this story, and that's kind of sad. But but the amazing thing is, so uh, verse 3 of Genesis 22, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, Yitzhak. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. The challenge that Richard Middleton gives everybody who reads this text is connected to what Mayor Sternberg, I think is where I first read this. Do people read Mayor Sternberg anymore, Richard? Uh, Old Testament scholars do. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I read his book on, I think it's called The Poetics of Biblical Narrative, and I believe that's where I first learned about gaps, is that, you know, there are gaps in the text that we should feel and sense, and they're there sometimes intentionally by the author. Um, so the gap here is the silence. Why the silence? Why doesn't Abraham say, really? Why would you, Why would I ever do this? I can't do this. Why would you ask me to do this? Whatever. He, he should have said something, and you press this point really hard. After you've set us up with all the importance of protesting and lament in the Old Testament as a legitimate form of talking to God, and after the non-bargaining of Abraham in Genesis 18, that Abraham should have learned that he could ask from, from God, and he doesn't. So there's gaps there, and they could be intentionally so, and I'm just wondering if you could just, you know, just sort of explore that silence theme. And at this point, Richard, I'd love for you to just explain how you how you read this text. And I know you can go this for hours and hours, right. but, but we don't have that. But right. uh, you're also a teacher and you teach lay people who will come up to you after a sermon and say, why did God test him and why the silence and You've got one minute, and you're and you're good, and <laughs> succinct, and concise. So, so tell us a little uh, bit about how you've explored this. So, 
I'll make a comment about the gaps, first of all. A lot of yeah. contemporary narratology, not just about the Bible, but about how narratives work, says that, you know, we bring our experience to stories and we run the stories through our minds as hypotheticals. And does it is it realistic to our life? And where there are gaps, we fill it from things we know. Now, I, I make the point that the first thing you fill a gap with may not be right, but you got to test it out. You try it out. Yep. You say, would this be possible? Is that possible? With that introductory statement, let me make a really important point. My interpretation of the text is not the only possible legitimate interpretation of the text. It depends very much on the framework of interpretation you bring to the text, what you will fill the gaps with. When I, You mentioned my earlier book, The Liberating Image. One of the first reviews of that book said, Middleton tries to convince theologians exegetically about what the Imago Dei means. That's not going to convince them because it's a hermeneutical question, not an exegetical question. That is, it's not about showing from the text what it means. It's having to reframe the question within a different interpretive grid. And many theologians come in a different interpretive grid than biblical scholars. Well, most readers of the Akedah come with a particular interpretive grid. Abraham is to be exalted for his unquestioning obedience of God. Isn't that wonderful? I could never do it, but he did it. And so let's abstract from the particularities of the story. Yeah, God doesn't really want you to kill your son. I would never kill my own child. But he is to be exalted because he unquestioningly did this. Well, I come with a different interpretive grid. God desires a vigorous dialogue partner. That's the way I put it in the book. Yeah, yeah. And so if, if that's the case, can I now make a different exegetical case? paying attention to details in the story, but also paying attention to the arc, the narrative arc of the Abraham narrative itself. And there I suggest that Abraham has been drawing closer to God, especially in chapter 18 where he's questioning God, but he starts to pull away from God. Because Abraham is a man who, in the narrative of the Bible, it comes out of a pagan culture and is going to be the father, the progenitor of a whole nation, through whom God will bring blessing to the rest of the world. He therefore has to learn about the nature of this God, who is not like the gods of the nations. And so I think of this as the ultimate uh, teaching example in the narrative of Abraham, that God wants Abraham to learn. And so let's give you a test. The test is, go kill your own son. Now, what I would do is I would say, first of all, is this God? How do I know this is the true God speaking to me? And I'd query mm -hmm. that. And then if I thought this really was God, I would ask, why would you want me to do this thing? And I say, please, Lord, do not take away my son, especially don't have me kill my own child and then have to live with that in my conscience for the rest of my life. Whatever else you're trying to teach me, something's wrong with that God. I would challenge God on this. Mm. So that's where I'm coming from overall. Um, the way I read this is that the test is twofold. So I'm going to jump to the conclusion, right? The test is primarily a test of can Abraham learn or discern God's character as a merciful God? And secondarily, can Abraham draw nearer to Isaac, his son, who the narrative shows that Abraham and Isaac are disconnected as father and son? He cares a lot about Ishmael. In fact, there is a biblical scholar who suggests the reason that Sarah wants to send Hagar and Ishmael away is because she knows that Ishmael is the favored son. 
And he, she figures that if he stays around, he's going to get the full inheritance and Isaac would be diminished. That's why she wants to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. But even apart from that, it's pretty clear that Abraham favors Ishmael. A lot of biblical scholars point that out. So mm -hmm. when God says, take your son, your only one, whom you love, not only is whom you love in Hebrew in a different um, syntactical phrase than the rest of the sentence, which makes it stand out a bit, but I think it means, take your son, your only one, whom you love, right? You love him? Abraham, you really love him? Well, take him and offer him. Take the one you really love. And it's a test of Abraham's love. Now, if Abraham had prayed for the sparing of his son, wouldn't that have drawn them closer together? So I think mm -hmm. that's a subsidiary part of the test. But the fundamental part is, can Abraham either trust that God is so merciful that he could protest or Wonder if God might be merciful and protest and learn it in the act of protest when God would say, okay, sure, I'm, I will accept your protest and I will not allow you to kill your own son. That's the summary. But there's a lot of detail I've left out there. Yeah. Okay. Of, of the details you've left out, what are, what are, what's one or two of your favorites? That, uh, <clears throat> what, what, yeah. I, I, I loved reading this book. I kept thinking, what is where is he going to go next, and what are you going to find? <laughs> and, and all your connections to the rabbis and uh, you know midrash, uh, and how they pondered the gaps and thought about what was going on. It's just not as it's just not the simplistic Christian reading that so many have. It's a, an exploration mm -hmm. yeah. of these characters, and I find this. I taught on the floor with English teachers. Um, when I was at North Park University, and they all would read a novel, and they'd see all these things going on. I'm going, well, I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't see that at all. And they were exploring the human dimension of the gaps. Yeah. So, what are some what are some of these things that you you think people should know about? Well, I th I think one of the really interesting ones is when Abraham says to his servants, when he sees Mariah in the distance, oh, yeah. he says to the servants, "You all wait here." The boy and myself, we're going to go over there and worship and we'll return to you. Now, all the rabbis point out that Abraham returns to his servants and Isaac isn't mentioned. So they have yeah. these series, what happened to Isaac? And one of them is yep. he got taken to the Garden of Eden to heal from his wounds. Another one is he was he went into the Torah study, the Beit Midrash of, of Seth to learn Torah because there are three years missing before he shows up again in the Bible. But he doesn't come down with Abraham. So my question is, does Abraham really think they're going to return together? And I saw a lot of rabbinic ideas on that. I don't necessarily approve of each of these ideas I saw, but I just show that you can, there's lots of ways to think about it. Mm -hmm. So the question is, does Abraham go over with Isaac and worship? And it doesn't seem that he does that. Even biblical scholars point out, if he intended to do it, he forgot because he didn't. he's not shown as worshiping God. He just immediately goes to sacrifice him. And then when, when Isaac asks him, you know, Dad, here is the fire and, and here is the wood, but, and he doesn't mention the knife which Abram is carrying, like eyes averted. So but where is the sheep for burnt offering? And Abram says, you know, God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Uh, and apart from the fact that my son is in opposition to the sheep for the burnt offering, implying that he could be the sheep for the burnt offering. Apart from that, the question is, does Abraham really believe God provides an alternative sacrifice? Mm -hmm. When he gets there, 
he doesn't look for a sac- an alternative sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He goes to sacrifice Isaac immediately. And it's when the angel stops him saying, Abraham, Abraham. And I point out in the book, the, the angel actually has the only infelicitous piece of Hebrew grammar in the whole thing. He leaves out something important in Hebrew grammar because he's so in, insistent to stop Abraham that he, he mangles the language of Hebrew in what he says. And he says, don't do it. And Abraham looks around and sees a ram caught in the bushes. I point out that a ram is a, a, a male goat with these curly horns from which a shofar is made. And they've been tangled in the bushes. Now, a ram would make a whole lot of noise trying to disentangle himself from the bushes. So if he just got tangled, Abraham wasn't listening. He was so hyper-focused on, on Isaac. But I think the ram had stopped um, shaking the bushes because he'd been caught there long before by God to say, here is the alternative sacrifice. But Abraham didn't even look around. He didn't mm-hmm. see the ram until the mm-hmm. angel stopped him. Then he looked around. So the one positive thing I can say about Abraham is once God stopped him, he looked around, he found a ram, and he offered the ram in place of his son Isaac. Good for him. That's like getting a C- minus on a test, not an A. <laughs> Okay, now, I found fascinating um, that, that Isaac and Abraham, from this point on, in the narrative of Genesis, are hardly connected. And that you explore the possible, I mean, you're not given dogmatic interpretations here, you explain in a true uh, rabbinic ma- model, I would say, midrashic model, um, the relationship of Abraham and Isaac after this. Could you, could you just speak to that? A bit? Yes. So Abraham returns um, to Beersheba with his servants. Isaac is not mentioned. The next yeah. time Isaac is mentioned, he's coming from a different geographical location, not Beersheba. Also, I, I point out that Sarah is not living in Beersheba. She's living in Hebron. Yeah. So, so they're all separated. It's a very broken family. And guess who else is living in Beersheba at that time? It's Hagar. <laughs> so it, it shows that Abraham and Hagar had something going. He cared for her and for Ishmael more than for Sarah and for Isaac. This is a fractured family in the beginning. So it's, yeah. there's no way I can hold up Abraham as an unalloyed, you know, perfect model. There's lots of positive things about Abraham. But he's also a broken person in many ways. And the moral of that story is God uses broken people. God still mm. uses Abraham and his family to bring blessing to the nations, despite the fact that Abraham is not perfect. Uh, so, yeah, that's the, once you explore the geography of where people are located, you realize that Abraham and Isaac are not living in the same place after that. You know, Richard, when I was in college, there was a, a local pastor whose daughter was a classmate of mine. And he was preaching through the uh, patriarchal narratives of Genesis, and he gave an interpretation not unlike this about the broken and dysfunctional family. And a couple of my Bible professors said, this is why psychologists shouldn't be reading the book of Genesis. <laughs> but why, why does the New Testament see everything about this text as positive? Uh, don't you think it does? So, you know, this is the question I get most from people who've read the book. Oh, no, wait, I got to ask you this. Thing. Yeah, go ahead. Have you, have you ever 
preached this from the pulpit on a Sunday morning? I don't think I have. No, I don't think I have. I, if it comes uh, up, you see, we, we work with a lectionary. So it's when I'm assigned to preach and is in a lectionary. Yeah. So I've not done this. I just wonder how this would go over. In fact, um, a young professor preached a little bit about this text last, maybe it was a year ago. And some people, and she actually brought some of this stuff up. And some people were not happy. Um, mm -hmm. So I just, okay, but all right. So, so the the New Testament sees it as positive by and large. So, right. so this is your common question. Is the, yes, I get emails from people who've read the book, and if I give a I give presentations on this, and this is the most common question. So, are you going against Hebrews eleven, um, yeah. especially that one? But it's also James, right? Hebrews eleven yeah. says that Abraham was willing to do this because he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So I point out the doctrine of the resurrection did not arise that early in ancient Israel. There is no doctrine of the resurrection until a couple hundred years before Christ as a consistent doctrine. I mean, there are, you know, anticipations of it in the Old Testament in a, yeah. in a few texts and so forth, but not as far back as that. Yeah. But but they let so to, how, how would you address that? And there's also... The, you know, Abraham, Abraham's faith, he trusted God. This is the kind of stuff you find mm -hmm. in the book of James and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the way I put it is this. I, I go back to a very important book by James Kugel, the Jewish scholar who used to be at Harvard, who is now at Tel Aviv, called The Bible As It Was, which is a series of excerpts from rabbinic texts and church fathers on texts in the Pentateuch, including this one. And what he says is, when I teach the Hebrew Bible at Harvard, he wrote it when he was at Harvard, when I teach it as a historical text, I point out we must read the text for what it would have meant to its original hearers. But as a rabbi teaching in the synagogue, I have to read the Bible through the history of the Midrashic interpretation. And Midrash has ended up saying that when you look at characters in the Bible, they're either good or bad. Dare to be a Daniel. That's the way the Christians would put it anyway, right? Abraham is a positive example. Samuel's great, Saul's bad, that kind of stuff. You're not going to find that in the text of Scripture, but you find it in the hermeneutical lens that the rabbinic um, tradition starts to use, which the church fathers also buy into. So the, the common era, as it begins in the first century, there is a way of reading Tanakh, Old Testament, that is shared by Jews and Christians. And Paul is, and the writer of Hebrews and also James are drawing on that tradition. Yes. So the way I would put it is this. Although I greatly respect Richard Hayes, I do not read backwards from the New Testament to the Old Testament. I read forwards from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So I want to understand how the trajectory of what we find in the text trans, gets transferred and transmuted into what we find in the New Testament. I want to understand that because I, I'm working on how the New Testament uses the old. And I want to understand that process. And I don't have a full understanding, but I have a partial understanding. And certainly I can say that the text in its original context meant one thing. It came to be read differently. So yes. when, so when um, you find a New Testament text commenting on an Old Testament text, it's not necessarily exegetical. Yep. It's using that Old Testament text to make a particular theological point. Yep. So I, I was asked, what's the point being made? Not whether the exegesis is, is perfect. 
and I don't want to read New Testament interpretation back into the Old, but I want to understand the organic development from Old to New Testament. That's not enough detail. That's why I'm going to be writing an article specifically on this, or maybe even a book on this at some point, because it needs clarification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I, um, it's especially for a New Testament professor when we look at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and I, I cut my teeth on this, teaching a course on how um, Matthew one to two uses the Old Testament. Which is really fun. So, and I had PhD students reading papers in class, and they were really exploring this. Um, Richard Hayes, though, is right, I think, when he says that that Paul would flunk our exegesis classes because we are so stuck in the historical critical method. Because he didn't do that. He was reading the Bible the way contemporary Jews and Greeks and Romans, were reading texts. Now, I don't know if you would totally agree with that, but it shows the sort of midrashic exploration of the text rather than it had one meaning and only one meaning. And there is a way of seeing the, uh, what do you call it? The Akedah. Akedah, Akedah as, as the perfection of Abraham's faith seen in Genesis 15. But that's not the only way to see that text. Is that is that what you're saying? Um, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm saying that. I, I'm saying that I don't. I don't even see that one could support at an exegetical level the perfection of Abraham's faith there, unless you come with that assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that lens. Yeah. Okay. Um, my last question. Uh, and I'm trying to find a Bible. Genesis 22:17 says, okay, well, 16, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time. By myself, I have sworn, says Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, didn't say the one you love, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring will, shall will possess the gate of their enemies, etc. This sure sounds like divine approval for yes. what he's done, and that's so. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I've read hardly anybody who takes it differently than divine approval. But here, here are two things to consider. The first is, in the first angel speech and in this one, when you get your son, your only one, the, the angel leaves out whom you love. Because it's pretty clear that he's not showing love for Isaac by going to kill him. And the, the second thing is this: let's not let's suppose we we don't have a preconception of what those verses you read meant that it's divine approval. We've come to it fresh. Yeah. yeah. And the angel of the Lord said, and called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, "By myself I have sworn," declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only one, because you don't understand my mercy, then I'm going to have to, by oath, swear to bring blessing to you because blessing will not come to you from your obedience. So I'm going to make up the, the failure with grace. And that's a, a perfect legitimate way to say it. Hmm. Uh, and I show analogies in the, in the story with Moses, very similar thing happens with Moses. 
-hmm. So it depends on your your lens by which you're coming. I think it could go either way. And mm -hmm. I think given the, the 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 wealth of detail that I have done for exegesis in my two chapters on this, by the time you get here, it's plausible to say God is saying, since you can't show full obedience and therefore receive blessing based on your obedience, I'm going to have to fill the gap. And I'm going to yeah. swear that I will bring about the blessing despite the fact that you didn't quite get it. But the very last verse, which you didn't read, verse 18, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you listened to my voice. Um, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 18, we have the promise that all the nations or the families of the earth shall bless themselves or be blessed uh, through Abraham. This is the first time it says through your seed, through your offspring, through your descendants. Mm -hmm. And that's because the offspring was saved. That statement couldn't have been made if Isaac had been sacrificed. It would have, yes, yes. it might have still been through Abraham, but not through Abraham's offspring, Isaac, who was the promised one. So I think that even verse 18 is saying, because you have listened to my voice and didn't kill him, therefore the nations be blessed through him. Yeah. And then, yeah. then later on, when God makes the promise to Isaac again, it's again through the offspring or seed that's mentioned. And the same okay. thing with Jacob. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Now, Richard, I'm, gonna, I'm going to exhort your pastor to invite you to preach on, the, on this text when it comes up, because I am dying to hear how, your, how a sermon like this could possibly make sense of all this in front of an audience that is reading it in a completely different way. Uh, but Th That's uh, only part I, of the problem, Scott. The other problem is <laughs> I have 17 minutes to do it in. <laughs> if I had a 45-minute sermon, I could probably do it. It's hard to get that in yeah. a short sermon. We have uh, now, we have 20 to 25 minute maximum. So you probably couldn't do it in that either. But Richard, this has been a really enjoyable book for me to read. And I want to I want to tell our listeners that for all the technicality that you have explored, this book is very easy to read. Your prose is clear, accessible. You know where people are so that they're going to be asking this question and you get that question on the table and answer it. It's, it is, yes, it's involved in exegesis. I just lost my earphone. Um, it's involved in exegesis. But it's clear, and it's it's a it's a, a model of 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 scholars writing for people, so that students and pastors who are interested in this text can read it and understand. Mm -hmm. it. I, I want to commend you for that, and for all your other work, and for your spirit and your toe of character um, in working working your biblical studies, and uh, for taking the time to be with us on Kingdom Roots. So I just want to thank you for your great work. Thank you so much, Scott. Been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Oh, great. I have to say that one of my big takeaways from this conversation is just the idea that God really does invite our honest questioning and our challenges, and that um, we shouldn't jump too quickly to try to, you know, 
be the proper biblical characters of just quiet submission, but we should be willing to wrestle with God, that God actually seems to enjoy it when we do, when we come with our honest questions. So that that I deeply appreciate from a pastoral level, because I think more people need to realize that. Yeah. Uh, God already knows that we have the questions. Why not ask them? So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Richard, we have so appreciated this conversation, and I want to tell all of our listeners that we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. 